people seem to think that the moment Reagan represented is the moment that we live in now. And in many ways, it's not. Our problems are economic, but different in the sense that we're living in a digital market, but also an incredibly concentrated market where you have banks cutting off people over their ideology. All of those things, I think, are going to require new and innovative and creative solutions that I think can fit within the bounds of conservatism. Our principles were made for this. Our principles were made to be flexible and resurgent in moments where the conditions have changed. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. You are in for a treat this week. I would like to think that's true every week because we have such great guests. But my friend and policy and conservative colleague, Rachel Bovard, who's the senior policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute, is with me here this week. We're going to talk about big tech, conservatism, the new right, the imminent conservative majority in D.C., maybe even 2024. We'll probably even get into some trouble, meaning (laughs) we're going to talk about conservative stuff this week. But let me be quiet for a moment and thank you, Rachel, for making time. My pleasure. Happy to be here. And you're also a Heritage alumna. And so since then, you have gone on to a great partner organization, partner in the conservative movement, where we do some things together, especially when it comes to staff training, articulating a future for conservatism. But before we get into some of the details of that, especially on the policy side, how is it that you got into this work? Because you also spent several years working on the Hill. Actually, it's an interesting and pointed question because I got my start in politics in many ways right here in this lobby. Um, I was a heritage intern way back in 2004. (laughs) And in this lobby, I met Margaret Thatcher. And Clarence Thomas. And yeah, as a, I think I was maybe 20, 19 or 20 at the time. And it was just wild for me in that moment. I, you know, grew up in a super small town. I did my undergrad at Grove City College, which is probably familiar to many of your listeners, but also a very small school. Had no plans to go into politics. I was a history major. I thought, maybe I'll go to law school. And had a a professor who became a mentor of mine, Dr. Paul Kengor, who was like, hey, you know, I was his research assistant on a number of books. And he was like, you should try politics. And he, he, I'd never heard of the Heritage Foundation. And he was like, start there. And that's kind of what kicked off um, my career. It just politics seemed really fun. And um, from undergrad, I went to Capitol Hill for 10 years, and it's been a wild and crazy ride ever since. Well, and and since that time, you wouldn't take credit for this other than maybe being a super Twitter troll, which is how you suggested <laughs> I introduce you. But I just, while that is true, and I'm glad you're on our side, the compliment I was going to give you is that you're one of the most insightful writers in the conservative movement. And oh, thank I, you. No, I, I mean that. It's heartfelt. And hopefully, People already know about you and your work, but if they don't, they should. And so we'll talk about some of the recent things that you've written. But where I wanted to, to start in terms of policy is that last few weeks we had the Federal Communications Commission Commissioner, Brendan Carr, on. Mm-hmm. And we talked about problems with big tech. Mm-hmm. And that episode has gotten a lot of traction because I think a lot of people in the audience were surprised that someone who is an FCC commissioner would be as quote unquote radical as he is. He's that concerned about both the economic consequences of what we've allowed big tech to do, but also the social and cultural consequences. You've written about both. But let's just start there with that really big project of reforming the problem that is big tech. What do we need to know and where do we start to reform it? So it's a big question. And I'm also a big fan of Commissioner Carr. I think he really sees the the depth and breadth of this problem. And I think it really starts at a at a 40,000 foot level of 
how much technology has changed the way that we live and interact and how fast that has happened. I don't think people really appreciate that the speed and scale at which the technological revolution in the digital space has happened. What I mean by that is that, you know, tech has changed how we, not just how we interact and how we speak, but how we shop, how we vote, how we gather information, how we relate to our families, how we learn. Every area of our lives has been impacted in some ways by these giant tech companies that now represent sort of the tech space. You know, even the market, as we've always understood it, is different now because, you know, traditional analog market understandings don't necessarily apply to the digital space where you're not constrained necessarily by brick and mortar. And so questions of scale become very significant in ways that you wouldn't have in a traditional market scenario. So, you know, up until you know, this digital revolution, if you think about it, like the mirror was a big technological advancement, right? And suddenly we've just sped up this pace in a very dramatic way. And our public policy really hasn't kept pace with that. And in some ways that's by design, right? Policy chases innovation in, a, in this country in a way that has made us the tip of the spear, right? The, the iPhone was invented here for a reason. But I think you also reach a tipping point, And we are at that point, I think. Um, and I, I, I think a lot of people would agree if you spend any time looking at it, that it is now time to for our policy to impact this space. Because we've reached a point where these technology firms, in many cases, are ruling us in ways that have become deeply uncomfortable and I think deeply unsustainable for a self-government, for a democratic society. And when you get to that point, that's when the self-government responds. And it says, okay, how do we preserve the things that made this strong while also respecting how this technology relates to a free and democratic people? And I think that's where we are right now. And so to pick up with the conversation that I had with Commissioner Carr, and I'm sure that, that you've had with him regarding some of the tensions, the philosophical tensions inside the conservative movement mm-hmm. that have been obstacles, frankly, to Heritage. We've been very open about this with our one voice policy. It took us a while to figure out where we wanted to land on confronting the big tech problem. As I tell people, that isn't anything we should be embarrassed about. We should actually, we and other organizations like yours who've been advancing the idea of reform on big tech should be proud that we're getting there as a movement. There's more work to be done. But where I want to go with that is as, as we record this, it's pretty clear there's going to be in, in at least one chamber of the U.S. Congress a conservative majority. Do you think that the leadership in that chamber and perhaps the Senate, we don't know uh, what has gone on with the election yet, if it is conservative, will be able to overcome those tensions inside conservatism, namely that there are still people who look at the free market as an altar to be bowed mm-hmm. to rather than a very good symptom of a very healthy society for the purposes of reforming the big tech problem? They're not there yet. And that is my candid assessment. And it's interesting because the base is very much there. I think the, it is my observation that the conservative base is is very ready to take on big tech and does not see any sort of clash between the idea that we need to preserve a free market, but also act against tech. They don't see that as a cognitive dissonance in, in a way, I think. But Republicans, elected Republicans are always a lagging indicator, again, of where the base is. And, and that's, again, I think by design. It's a good reminder. Yeah, but it's, it's also by design because in this country, we rule from the bottom up. We don't rule from the top down. So, you know, I, I think they are still trying to get over what I think is plaguing the political right in this moment, which you and you alluded to it, which is this 
ideology of the market that I think has really ossified into a dogma that is not helpful right now. And what I mean by that is I think conservatives, conservatism as a philosophy, conservatism as a worldview has always looked at the market not as an end to itself, but as a means to a meaningfully free life, right? And in many ways, for the last 30 years or so, you know, the market was a solver of a lot of our problems. I think in the Reagan era, you can argue that was definitely true. We had a very sclerotic economy. You know, you needed a lot of that deregulation and and the and a lot of market functioning to overcome that. Those things are still important, but I I, I make a distinction between the market and the massive multinational corporations that exist within it. That's not the market. <laughs> Those corporations are not the market. And so, you know, to exact some rules of the road for how those companies interact with the market and us, to me, is not sort of, quote unquote, the heavy hand of the government. It is simply um, sort of this Lockean idea of actually creating the space for all of us to associate in the market in a free manner. And I don't think that exists right now. No, it doesn't. And and it seems as if, to, to borrow your phrase that and your candid assessment, leadership, political leadership in Washington is not there yet. There's some, some work to do that if someone watching or listening this to this episode is asking, well, what can I do? It would be to draw that distinction mm-hmm. between these multinational corporations, frankly, who don't even see themselves as American corporations first. A huge, It should be a huge affront to all of us across the political spectrum. But drawing a distinction between them and the free market, which would be most commonly just thinking about the the commercial transactions in this country between one person and a very small business. I think the more conservatives can do that, mm-hmm. the better we're off. And just by extension, I think that also underscores another reality in the conservative movement, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And that is the emergence of conservatism as more of an everyday working class American kind of movement. It's always been that way. You know the history of that well. But I think it's really important for us to re-embrace those origins of the movement. I don't want to talk about that yet because there's another question about big tech I want to ask. Sure. Section 230. Coming up in the Supreme Court. Yes. Tell us about that. Uh, so Section 230. Where do we start? Oh, my gosh, I know. It's like so much light and heat and sturm and drang around this. Um, so, yeah, so Section 230 for people that are unfamiliar is this 26 words that, quote, unquote, created the Internet. But simply all it did in, in 1996, it was passed and envisioned as a way to incentivize these companies to moderate content. And what I mean by that is get rid of the stuff people don't want to see. Um, it was conceived as a way to literally protect kids from pornography on the internet, right? And to incentivize these companies to remove that content, but not be sued for it. So it created this immunity that I have argued in many places, and I think Commissioner Carr probably has too, that it has been completely stretched and contorted by the courts to cover all manner of sins. I mean, you literally have Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, arguing in court that Section 230 protects them from sex traffickers, uh, pushing 14 and 15 year old girls into sex slavery. That was never the intent of the law. Um, and so it's a, it's a component of the tech law that many of us have focused on as a way to uh, rein in these companies, to make them more accountable for how they manage speech on these platforms. And in, I think the basic reality of it is, is it was a statute that was blown out of proportion by the courts and needs to be reined back in. Now, the Supreme Court has taken up Gonzalez v. Google, which is not a clear Section 230 question, but deals specifically with uh, algorithmic amplification, right? 
do in this case specific case you're dealing with how the platforms treated ISIS content, right? So you're dealing with does Section 230 protect the platforms when they're dealing with content created by terrorists? Talk about real terrorists, real terrorists, not just yes, the domestic right, terrorists like, <laughs> who are parents of public school yeah, kids, not the ones protesting school boards. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, but you may have, I think, another case that comes uh, up before the Supreme Court dealing with the Texas social media law, which um, basically bars the platform from engaging in viewpoint discrimination. And you actually have a split uh, on the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. And generally, you know, conventional wisdom holds that when there's a split between those circuits, the Supreme Court will try to address that question. Now, that's a very clear Section 230 question. Congress has proven itself unable to deal with this question. So we're sort of looking at the Supreme Court to say, will you solve this problem? Now, I think it's interesting because Justice Clarence Thomas has opined very openly about Section 230 saying Yes, you know, the courts may have just completely distorted this, and it's incumbent upon us to clarify that it's a very limited uh, immunity rather than a very broad one. So we'll see. (laughs) And timing on that is in terms of learning about the outcome of those cases next summer, right? Summer of 2023. Likely, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in the meantime, there may be some other state legislative action, perhaps some action in the U.S. House. We'll we'll see. But um, I have not sensed a cohesiveness among enough conservatives in the House, although there are some great stalwarts who want to take action on 230 and some other issues. So I will say one component of this that I was very glad to see is the states are taking so much action on this question. And in so many ways, the states are the tail that wags the federal dog, right? Like states push Congress to act on this issue. They push the federal courts to act. And I'm, I just want to applaud all the states that are doing that. No, it's exciting on that issue and others, yeah. right? And, and that might be a perfect segue. So thank you into another topic we wanted to cover, which is the future of conservatism. Mm-hmm. Often in commentary that, that you're part of, discussions about the so-called new right. And this is, to the extent that I can remember, the third time in the last hundred years there's been a yeah. new right in <laughs> The new right keeps getting newer. Yeah, that's right. There's a Buckley at one point was a member of the new right. Russell Kirk, to his horror, was once called a member of the new right. Uh, I, I read an article of yours from last month where you talked about the new right, Reagan being part of the new right in the yeah. late 70s and 80s, and we have a new right today. We're going to get into that specifically, but I want to hang on this point before we do that that you just made about state action. Because we will sometimes talk about federalism, Mm -hmm. which still has meaning, but for most Americans, it's meaningless because it's used so often as sort of a buzzword. But I think what you're you're getting at is something much more powerful and specific, which is that state legislatures and governors – are saying, we're going to tell Congress, we're going to demand what Congress do, which is precisely what the framers of the Constitution had in mind in most policy areas. Do you think we will see more of that in the near future? I do. I think that the conservative movement in this moment, and this is, I'm very glad to see this, is embracing almost this radical federalism which is to say, you know, everybody's fed up with the government. They recognize that the Congress is just completely dysfunctional. And I think, you know, the overreach of the Biden administration has really pushed governors and state attorneys general, and I would even say state treasurers, uh, to engage where the federal government either cannot or has not. And so I'm, I'm really gratified by that. But the caveat I would add to this, though, is that so many in the, in the conservative movement sometimes use that as an excuse. To, and they'll say, well, the states should handle it and, and our hands are off. To some extent, that's right. 
up until the point where you realize that the left has aggressed so much that they do not intend to let red states live in peace, right? They do not intend to allow Governor DeSantis to go unmolested or unharassed. And so there is a federal role here, um, you know, to the extent that it's protecting these red states. That is incumbent upon the conservative movement in Washington to pay very close attention to. You simply can't say, well, the state should deal with it and ignore it from there. It's you have we have to be vigilant in this moment in a way that we have never had to be before, because everything is so politicized in a way it hasn't been before. In a way that very well-meaning conservatives have sort of ignored until recently. Is it is it your sense that as you write and speak and and talk to groups privately as well, that more kind of rank-and-file conservatives recognize that? That, in other words, earlier in our conversation, you talked to elected, uh, about elected officials in D.C. as being lagging indicators. Is it your sense that the, where the base is, and we're not talking about knuckle-draggers. Right. <laughs> we're talking about very well-educated, sophisticated Americans who are successful but they're the base mm-hmm. that that's where they are and the elected officials will follow them. I'm looking for optimism here in the next decade. I think that that movement has been building for a while. And what I mean is I think that the there has been a growing and I don't mean just recently. I, I would say probably for the last 20, 25 years, there's been a growing disconnect between the Republican base and the Republican elected majority or conference in in Washington. And I think the first real movement that you saw in response to that from the voters was the Tea Party. Um, And that was voters throwing up their hands and saying, you guys aren't listening. Uh, Get it, right? But I think what happened there was that a lot of the energy around the Tea Party, if you remember, and, and I that was really, I kind of came of age in the Tea Party moment. You know, I started my career on Capitol Hill in 2006, but the elections, 2008, 2010, like I was really caught up in that moment, people like to look back on it and say, no, it was just driven by the debt and deficit. That was part of it, but it was also a a very visceral reaction to an attempt by the Republicans in Congress to pass amnesty. It was a very big response to Obamacare and wanting them to repeal Obamacare. And I think that energy got co-opted in Washington by maybe a willful attempt or just, you know, by accident into a lot of things it wasn't. And so I think voters were like, you missed it. So the Tea Party was a shot across the bow. I think Republicans in Washington weren't responsive in ways voters wanted. So then I think they sent a nuclear bomb to Washington, and that was Donald Trump. (laughs) Um, That was the, you know, you didn't get it the first time, so we're going to make sure you listen this time. And I think Trump has just created the most meaningful political realignment I may ever see in my lifetime. Um, I was just talking about this yesterday, actually, at, over at CPI, how he has transformed both parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, in, in tremendous ways. And so I think if – and there's an energy in Washington that's always – you have an entrenched group, the Washington establishment, I, let's just call them, that always wants to pretend that's not happening. They, the, the, they want to regress to the mean so badly. <laughs> like, it's so natural. Yeah, right, that you can see it. Like they want to pretend the Trump moment never happened. Like they're, they just want to get back to like wars and campaign finance reform and, you know – whatever else. They don't want to actually engage in the culture wars the way Donald Trump did. They don't want to deal with the wreckage, I would say, of globalism and neoliberalism and how that has just destroyed the center of the country. 
they don't want to admit that that was the result of policy choices that they engaged in and that they can, they must now deal with. And so you're seeing that, like there's that always that churn to like push back to that regression, you know, regress to the mean. And I think the voters very much are prepared to not let that happen again. And I think if this new conservative majority is not responsive to that, they're going to toss him out. Like, I, I don't know how else to put it. Like, th- this this moment, I think, has to very viscerally reflect how the base feels threatened in ways they've never felt threatened before. They're looking to their legislators to respond to that. It's, it's that palpable. I yeah. mean, you know that from the work that you do. I know that from the work that I do, especially the travel around to, to spend time with everyday Americans. And you use the word realignment. And, mm-hmm. and I know you mean that as a, both a sort of common sense term, but also a political science term. Mm-hmm. And, and, and both are correct. But I also want to get your feedback on, on a claim that I will make. And it's piggybacking on something that you just said, which I agree with. And I know you have mentioned this to incoming elected officials, and I have as well. If you miss this moment as conservatives, you can't count on any of us who've helped you get here. Yeah. But And therefore, there will be yet another realignment that probably will start looking like a very different political party structure, as absurd and fantastical and radical as that sounds. That's how fed up the American people are. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And, and this is what I how I the reason I brought up the Tea Party and then Donald Trump and now is because I do think these are waves building on each other. It's moments that were missed by this conservative Republican establishment, however you want to call it in Washington, they missed those moments. They now have a chance to get it right. And I think this is the, you know, you will always hear the phrase, right? This election is the most important election of my lifetime. Like every election is that, right? But I will say, I think the stakes of this election are the highest I've ever seen because of the destruction the left intends to wield. If they ever have power again. And and we've seen, we've gotten a taste of that, I think, from the democratic unified government that we've seen. And I think there's this belief among some Republicans in Washington that, well, if we just get power and, you know, stop them for the next two years, that'll be enough. And it's, it's no, right? You know, the Republicans always learn the wrong lessons from these wave elections. And what I mean is, you know, there's a wave election, they're ushered into power and they're like, we have this mandate. Look at our huge coalition. We're amazing. And it's like, guys, especially in this instance, they're not coming to you because you, you're you good. <laughs> they're coming to you because they want the beatings to stop. And not only that, they want to know that they are protected from ever being treated like that again. So it's not enough to just say, well, I've, I've, I've stopped what the other guy's doing. It's what is your vision to create you know, a meaningfully free life for the people that you represent. And that's the piece I think we're missing. We don't, you know, you've seen some people dabble in it. You know, Senator Rick Scott very famously put out an agenda and the reaction in Washington was like, how dare you have a free thought that we haven't controlled? Some of the commentary was almost that explicit. Yeah, no, it was like, it's like I'm mocking it, but not really. It's, which is horrifying. Um, but you, you need more, you need to see more of that because the, the challenges that Republicans face now are really unlike any they've, they've ever faced. I think the problem that we have with the sort of entrenched Reaganism is that people seem to think that the moment Reagan represented is the moment that we live in now. And in many ways, it's not. Well, in, in, I think in all ways, it's not. We're not fighting the Cold War, you know, with with Russia. We don't have one common enemy. Um, you know, we don't, our problems are economic, but different in the sense that we're living in a digital and markets 
a digital market, but also an incredibly concentrated market where you have banks cutting off people over their ideology. Uh, so all of those things, I think, are going to require new and innovative and creative solutions that I think can fit within the bounds of conservatism. Our principles were made for this. Our principles were made to be flexible and resurgent in moments where the conditions have changed. And Reagan, of all people, if he were here, would tell us as much. In fact, yeah. in this this essay of yours that I read, which I guess might have been the text of your speech at the National Conservatism Conference, this was in the Federalist, where you're a regular contributor. You even you even make the point to paraphrase you that we ought to be grateful to Reagan for, in other words, for you to make the constructive criticism of the movement that the age of Reagan is behind us and let's stop talking about it is not the same thing as saying that you're ungrateful to what <laughs> happened there. Quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. We're, you know, we, we we are descendants politically and ideologically. We're sitting in the house did. that Reagan built that's, in many ways, in, in yeah. many respects. That's right. And and yet to honor this house, the Heritage Foundation, to honor the movement, to honor most importantly, what motivates us all: self governance. Mm-hmm. Our movement must adapt to the times. And so what are those issues that you think right now are sort of the flashpoints, the the issues of tension within conservatism that also will get resolved in ways that have not been clear until recently? I think one of the biggest issues is how the conservative movement, its relationship with corporate power. Um, I think is is a, a concept I spend a lot of time writing about, and I think is reflected in the big tech debate. I think it's reflected in you know the concept of the digital economy, um, and it's interesting even today. I'm you know how the Republican Party establishes its new relationship with business is is something I'm very critical of right now uh, because you know you're already seeing some Republicans want to they just want big business back on their side. Right. And, and my, my philosophy is, is no. Right. You know, these businesses not only hate us, but in many ways, they reflect a threat to freedom and liberty as we understand it. And that needs to be diminished. Right. And, and so many and a lot of what I've spent time writing about over the last few years is that the conservative movement needs to get skeptical of threats to liberty wherever they arise. And in many cases, that's almost always the government. Right. But it's also massive concentrations of corporate power can be just as damaging and even more so in some respects than the government itself. And the pushback I always hear to that is, well, Facebook can't put you in jail. Well, they can't. But you know what? Banks are actively, as I just mentioned, debanking people over ideology. Email services will drop you for being a domestic terrorist. And by that, I mean, protesting your school board. Um, You know, you're seeing even companies like Uber cut people off because they don't like their political beliefs. We live in an age and an economy where the access points to capitalism can be cut off. And that is not something conservatives should stand for. And that will mean aggressively pushing back against not just, you know, woke corporatism, but the structures of the market themselves where they perpetuate wokeness. Because wokeness, in my mind, is tied to scale. And it's tied to the concentration of the market where you, for instance, let's take Google, right? Google is only effective because it filters information for 90% of the world. If Google, whatever they choose to suppress or amplify changes opinions and information gathering and the downstream effect of that is voting and learning and all these things. If Google only did that for 20 or 30% of the world, I probably would care a lot less. So again, scale is what matters. Actually, the Delta, the CEO of Delta was on CNN yesterday or today, and he was saying, 
I'm proud of the fact that we cut ties with the NRA. I'm proud of the fact that my company stood up and slammed the Georgia election law. And when the anchor said, well, have you seen any impact on your business? He said, no, I see no impact on my business. And why is that? It's because you can't boycott Delta. (laughs) You know, it's too big. And I think the conservative answer to say, well, just don't patronize this, suggests that we live in a market where huge companies are somehow responsive to tiny market actors. So I don't think it's a practical response for conservatives to say to the busy mom of four, well, don't shop at Target, right? Because you don't like Target's, you know, bathroom policies. Like that's not a, that's not a response. Yeah. What I, I mean, I would say what I love about that example, of course, I hate that's reality, but what yeah. I love about that example, the, the instructiveness of it is that that's a really important example for the everyday listener of what you mean when you say the days of Reagan are gone. Mm-hmm. Because in the days of Reagan, it was possible for conservatives to boycott yeah. a company that was doing something dumb, that was doing something anti-American. And in fact, they did with great success. But you can't now because of the huge over-concentration of capital in a few hands. Therefore, I'm presuming that you would argue the solution is political. And so what does that look like? In other words, what I'm, I'm pressing you a little bit here, but you know there's violent agreement between the two of us. Uh, what does that look like from a policy point of view? Because you've spent more time than most in figuring out how to take these ideas and put them into a policy action. Yeah. So I think there's a number of options. I think from a high level, I always start with radical decentralization, which is, I think, a, con- a conservative principle in many ways. But that requires very specific policy actions, the first of which is being critical of how these companies have amassed so much power. So much of the concentration we see in the market right now, it's not the free market. It's a policy choice. It was a choice Republicans and conservatives made to not be critical of major mergers and acquisitions that I would argue we should have been critical of. We should not have allowed Google to acquire DoubleClick. We don't get into the weeds of why. I wrote about The Federalist. You can read it there. (laughs) Uh, But in the financial sector, you know, we created so much moral hazard by not really addressing what happened after the financial crisis in 2008. And we've similarly allowed and these, com- these financial companies to amass so much power that, you know, there's, you can argue, oh, if I don't like Bank of America's policies, I'm going to go to my credit union or my community bank. Okay, that's fine for most people. But what if you're my husband who has a small business? You know, his our small bank can't capitalize the type of loans he needs, so therefore I'm shoved right back in to this big to big real, finance. This is a real problem. This is a I'm literally facing this problem, right? <laughs> and so what do we tell people? And you know, you saw PayPal recently engage in this kind of, you know, uh, they had put out a policy that says if you engage in hate speech, we're gonna like debit twenty five hundred dollars of your money. And a lot of conservatives were like, you know, boycott PayPal. Well, over 30 million small businesses use PayPal as their primary point of transaction. It, it's not a solution to tell them to just gut their small business in that way. So whether it's I, – I think the first step has to be being critical of how this power is amassed and using our antitrust laws, which is law enforcement for the market. I know there's some disagreement among conservatives, uh, among conservatives about that statement, but I think at a high level it's true. The market has to have – the rule of law. How you do that is antitrust. So you start there. But then I also think, you know, you're looking into some form of, you know, non-discrimination, public accommodation access in the financial marketplace. Um, You know, you have some conservatives who want to get more specific about speech protocols and association protocols. 
there's always a danger, I think, when you go down that road, which is why I always start at the decentralization point, because I think that solves, I think a lot of the speech and association concerns are actually downstream of market power. If you break the concentration that exists, you break the power of woke capital in many ways, and you allow other business models to spring up where right now they can't because the market is so ossified. So we can talk about policy for a long time, but you're a busy person, so I won't do that to you. As we ask you the, I ask you the last couple of questions, they're advice questions for our, for our audience. And you, yeah, I know. So <laughs> I'd say you're ready. I have to tell the audience, so they're ready. The first is, I'm just going to presume that in spite of all of the reasons to be pessimistic, knowing you some, that you're optimistic that if we're willing to work hard as a movement and confront the tensions inside our movement and the problems in the country, we're, we will prevail. But if that's the case, that is that we will have prevailed by the end of the 2020s, what are the two or three things that the everyday conservative will have done that makes you optimistic? I'm trying to give people action items. You mean conservatives in Washington or just general <laughs> well, conservatives? We don't want to engage in fantasy land, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, you, you can take the question however you'd like. Um, I am optimistic, I will say. And the reason I'm optimistic is because I trust the American voter and more than I trust anyone else. And I think American voters are always, always, always smarter than politicians in Washington give them credit for. They don't like being lectured to and they will not stand for it. And so they will demand that kind of change. So I think what at the if we if we do prevail, the average conservative voter will look far more skeptically at business. Um, I think they will have a far more skeptical response to the sort of foreign wars and entanglements that have driven the country in a lot of ways. They will say, you know, they will ask first, is this in America's interest? Um, they will be, I hope, far more willing to focus on the the trades. And that, I think, will reflect the conservative demographic change that's going on in our party. If, you know, this was, I think, spun a lot after Donald Trump left office, that he left us with a different uh, demographic base, based just based on donations alone, right? You saw the Democrats being made up of, of far more highly educated, credentialed, white-collar university professors, tech executives, whereas Republican donations were plumbers and truck drivers and homemakers. And so I want to see just a relentless focus on policy for those people, right? Our party policy has always, at least for the last 30 to 50 years, I, I would say, has been defined by this idea that if you support the people at the top of the market, everyone else will sort of figure it out. That's not the case anymore. The people at the top of the market are doing just fine. The middle class family is still struggling. Why? Why is that? And if we as a party are not prepared to iterate specifically on that question and make that middle class family our constituency, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, people talk to me about, you know, and this is brought up in the new right a lot. Well, what is what is family policy look like? I'm not interested in technocratic meddling with the tax code necessarily, right? What I'm interested is in is a, a policy view that says every policy is family policy. Our tech policy is family policy because our kids are being ruined by, you know, TikTok and Facebook and Google in the classroom. Our 
foreign policy is family policy because who do you think is fighting these wars, right? Our uh, election policy is family policy. Our economic policy is has to be by definition made for families. And so that I think, you know, if we actually do win this, people will start looking at our politics in that way, through that lens, you know, rather than, um, you know, how's Wall Street doing today? Frankly, I don't care. <laughs> no, we have we have to get to that point. Yeah. And, and it, it will concern people who are so accustomed to doing that. But I'm sure when they they hear you say what you just said about every policy being family policy, that rings true. Because they know that American communities have deteriorated, that they can they can cite increased homicide rates as we have done this year. That, of course, is awful in and of itself, but that's a function of something. And that something it's a function of is just the deterioration of the family, the deterioration of the American community. So much of that driven by misguided technocratic policy. So the answer can't be more technocratic policy right. to fix that. Well, and this is something I think that's very important to focus on because – you know, you want to get to a point, and I hear this from conservatives all the time, and I share this desire. I want to get to a point where I don't think about Washington all the time. I mean, I do because it's my job, right? But going about my daily life, I don't want to think about politics. I don't want politics in my face all the time. But to get to that point, you have to be prepared to do battle in politics. And that's where the conservative movement isn't quite there yet. Because we've always said the answer to these problems is we'll solve them at the local level. But our communities have been gutted, right? Have your neighbor take care of you. Well, my neighbor strung out on opioids and had his job shipped to China, right? Again, these problems are the result of policies in many ways. And so if you aren't prepared to do battle to either reverse those policies or put in, you know, new boundaries to prevent stuff like that from happening, then you're never going to get to that point down the road that we all want to get to. So conservatives have to change their mentality to some extent. We, we're in a moment where we have to show up and do battle and, you know, use our political power to create the space in which free, a free people can flourish to be able to get to the end point. You're so good, Rachel, at articulating action items, which is why I'm glad we also homed in on, on family policy, something that, that Heritage is, is working on extensively. We haven't figured out our specific answers, but all of my colleagues know technocratic solutions are not acceptable. So I'm really <laughs> glad you said that. But the, the final question is, it will sound academic, but I mean this to be helpful in terms of the action items. Although you're good, very good at listing the action items, you're also really good at tethering those to our principles, tethering those to timeless leaders, timeless books. And I, I've been wanting to ask you this since we first met, which I think was on the southern border. It was, a, I think it was. On a Texas yeah. Public Policy <laughs> Foundation CPI trip to the border years ago. Has there been a book, maybe you read it in college, maybe since, maybe before, an essay, that in spite of all of the changes in the country, all of the changes in conservatism, you go back to, whether actually literally rereading it or thinking about, that helps guide your thinking about adapting our particular political program today to the circumstances we find ourselves in? It's a good question. So I always go back. So actually, my senior thesis as an undergrad was on Edmund Burke. And no surprise there. Yeah. This so is with Paul Kingor. With Paul Kingor. I always go back to Burke because it's, it's what I know. But, you know, I always have also liked the way, well, I love the way Burke talks about, you know, community and, and values and, and kind of the, 
the permanent things. But I think Burke, the essence of Burke was really captured by Russell Kirk, right, who talked about the idea of preserving the permanent things, who talked about one of my favorite um, ways he phrased this, too, is that conservatives always have they always have a duty in every age to bring out, find the old virtues and bring them back into the light. You know, the creep of progress and modernity is always just pushing those things down, right? It is always trying to edge out the permanent things to degrade them, to, you know, crash us against the rocks of, of just, alienation. And so I think we as a movement always have to keep in mind what we're fighting for and that it's not a set of rigid policy prescriptions. It's those principles. It's the things that make life worth living. It is, you know, community and family and nation and human dignity. And those as a matter of policy look different in every era. Um, You know, and the last thing I'll say, you know, you and I are both Catholic, but the book American Babylon by Father Newhouse, I always find an inspirational read whenever I feel, you know, distressed in this moment. I'm reminded that, you know, we are sojourners. Uh, This earth is not our home, but while we're here, we're going to do everything we can to fight for the the values and and the things that we are put on this earth to preserve. What a wonderful way to conclude a great conversation. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Thanks. Rachel Bovard, where would someone who's interested in reading more of your work go? So you can always find me on Twitter as the troll at Rachel Bovard. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yes, I'm on Twitter at Rachel Bovard where I post all my stuff. But I write regularly for The Federalist. Um, and you can find my work also on Substack. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for joining this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. Obviously, there's much for us to do. But what I hope you heard from Rachel Bovard is that there's hope if we're willing to go work hard for it. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.